Amen. Thank you, Pastor Troy. And to everyone who's here or listening online, we'd love for you to grab your Bibles right now. We'll be in James chapter one tonight as we continue our second week of our teaching series on the book of James. Um, if you were out of town last week or, or weren't able to catch our church services, you can jump onto the Calvary website and catch up with our first week as we kicked off the series, talked about the book of James and introduced this marvelous New Testament book that we're going to walk through verse by verse. Before I get into the text tonight, though, just want to remind all of us uh, of the season of transition and change we're in here at Calvary, uh, where we are looking forward to the weekend of January 16th and 17th, that's the Saturday and Sunday, where we will have all of our weekend services, Saturday night, 6 p.m., and Sunday morning, 9 and 11 p.m., or 11 and 11 a.m., um, here inside the worship center. So we are moving toward that very quickly. Uh, in these interim weeks of January 2nd and 3rd, the weekend you're listening to right now, uh, we'll have indoor at 6 p.m. and outdoor at 9 and 11, uh, and that's true for the next week as well, the 9th and the 10th. But we are looking forward to that. Uh, our team is working diligently to make sure that is a safe, healthy, and compelling environment, not only for you who are listening uh, as adults right now, uh, but for your children as well in the many environments there. So you can go on to calvarywestlake.org if you want to find the details. We will continue to update um, all of the parts of that website to keep them as up-to-date as possible as things change as we go forward. But we're looking forward um, to this next step of regathering as a church uh, and hope you'll lean in with us. And if you're not able to, I want to speak especially to those of you online, we're going to continue to put out high quality broadcasts to encourage your faith uh, and to build your trust in Jesus in this season of being at home. So with that said, uh, let's jump into the book of James tonight. We're going to begin in the 12th verse. Uh, and I want to encourage you as always to have your Bibles open so you don't take my word for it, uh, but you know what God actually has to say to us. So again, James chapter 1, verse Verse 12, here's how it begins. It said, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So it begins with this verse and the verse begins with a promise of a blessing. And anytime in the scriptures you hear that there's a promised blessing for you, your ears should perk up. You should lean in and go, I want that. I want that blessing. I want what God has for me. It says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Now, if you listened last week or if you were here, you heard us talk about those trials, those difficult, painful, suffering moments of life. And the perspective James is going to give us that it's producing something inside of us. When we persevere under those trials, when we have passed that test, that test that is given to us when life gets hard, it says that person will receive something. So here's the blessing. That person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, I speak to those of you in the room right now and those of you online, and I understand that not every person listening to the sound of my voice does love the Lord. Maybe you're far from God. Maybe you haven't put your faith and trust in him, and you can do that today where you sit. You can cry out to God and say, God, I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to walk in a love relationship with you. But to those of you that do love the Lord, to those of you that are walking with Jesus, to those of you who have received the promise of the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of your sins, this is a beautiful promise that's extended to you. There's a blessing that's promised to you, and it's promised to you in the form of these three words, the crown of life. This is the promise that's made to you. There is this crown that is offered to you, and it's called the crown of life. I wanna show you what that, this word is in the original here. The word crown in Greek is the word Stephanos. And this is the word we find throughout the New Testament when the New Testament references a crown. 
Now, now when you and I think crown, here's what we tend to do. Our mind tends to drift toward an image just like this, right? And the reason our mind tends to drift toward images like this is because many of us, perhaps some of you, watch far too many British television shows on Netflix, okay? That's what we do. So in our mind, this is a crown. This is what the crown is supposed to look like. There's jewels and there's gold and there's usually like a ping pong ball type situation on top. This is a crown. But when the, when the Greek word Stephanos, which translates into crown, is used in the New Testament, it is normally not, it's not referring to a crown like this. Instead, it's referring more to a crown like this. This is the crown it's referring to. It's a crown placed on the head of someone who has just won an athletic competition. It's the crown placed on the head of someone who has just won, run a race, and they are the victor, and they're standing there, and this crown of victory is placed upon their head. So it's not a gold crown covered in jewels. It's this crown right here. When the word Stephanos is used, it's referring to this. And you'll see this in other places. I want to give you one because I think it'll help us understand this word a little bit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I'll put this up on the screen right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. And then he goes on this way. He says this. He says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. And here's why they do it. Here's why you go through the hard things, the difficult things, the trials and the suffering in life. You do it to get a crown, a Stephanos, which will not last, but we do it to get a crown, same word, Stephanos, that will last forever. So, so notice the parallel that Paul is trying to make here with the same word that James is using. What he's saying is that when you run in a race in the ancient world and, and they give you a crown, they give you a crown, a Stephanos, but it won't last. Why won't it last? It's the same reason the flowers you put out on your table won't last, because it's a dead thing and it's rotting. And it's dying right in front of you. The crown that's placed on your head when you run a race, it's not going to last at all because it's made of leaves. But instead, we get a different kind of crown, a different kind of Stephanos that will last forever. This is an eternal reward that is promised for the people of God. It is an eternal reward that is promised for you if you love Jesus. It is an eternal reward that is handed to us, that is extended to us from God our Father. But like, let me put it to you this way so clearly. There is an eternal reward for you for doing the following things. When you do these things, I want you to see what this eternal reward for passing the tests, for staying faithful, for turning from your sin and walking in obedience, this Christian life, this Christian life that we just define here at Calvary as living and loving like Jesus, being faithful, walking after God, listening to his voice and responding. There is an eternal reward that is held out for you. Uh, like all throughout the scriptures, from Jesus to the apostles, they are unapologetic in saying that there is a reward for you. It's not that just that you just kind of do it because it's the right thing to do, or, or you do it because there's nothing in it for you, but you're just going to try to serve God. There is a reward that is extended to you. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. The heavenly rewards are presented as a motivation for faithfulness in this life. When the scriptures talk about these rewards, when it talks about the crown of life, when Jesus says, great is your reward in heaven, it is presented as a motivation. In other words, the idea isn't you're supposed to do the right thing and not sin and walk after Jesus just because it's the right thing and you shouldn't expect anything. That is not the biblical ethic of the New Testament. The New Testament presents rewards as a motivation. And I'll say this, even some people who are Christians sometimes get a little nervous about this. Because here's what it sounds like. It sounds like you're walking in faithfulness to Jesus, not because you're trying to honor him, but because you want something for you. 
And here's what I wanna say. Jesus is okay with that tension because Jesus is going to constantly offer that when you walk in that kind of faithfulness, there is a reward for you. This is a motivation. The idea isn't walk in faithfulness with Jesus and whatever reward you get is, is inconsequential. No, in the New Testament, there is rewards promised for you. And it is a reward promised as a motivation for your faithfulness. It's motivation for us to flee from our sin, to walk in holiness, to listen to God's word, to be on our knees in prayer. There is a motivation for us. Now you might ask me, okay, heavenly rewards, motivation for my faithfulness. What are these heavenly rewards? Tell me all about them, Brian. And here's what I'll tell you. That there's different images and pictures used all throughout the New Testament from Jesus and his apostles as we look in the New Testament books. But here's what I'll say. The one thing I can say for sure is that the heavenly reward above all things is eternal life extended to you. That you'll die, but one day your body will be raised. You'll live and rule and reign with Jesus forever. But is there more to it, you might ask? Like, is there more heavenly rewards? Are there different layers and levels of heavenly rewards? Are there different things I might get for my faithfulness in this life? And here's my answer to you. It's gonna frustrate some of you. I don't know everything about this. And I don't know everything because the scriptures don't tell us everything. The scriptures do not tell us everything there is to know about heavenly rewards and what it looks like and who gets what and what you have to do to earn what. The scriptures don't go into all that detail. But here's what the scriptures do tell us. That our God is a good father and everything our good father gives us is worth longing for. It's worth being motivated to receive. I'll put it like this. I remember the first time I ever gave my daughter ice cream. I gave her ice cream. And you gotta imagine for all of you, ice cream's normal, but you gotta imagine a child. They've never had anything like it in their entire life, right? Because all the food they've ever had is either hot or warm or room temperature. And then you're going, okay, I want you to try something. And it just came out of the freezer. It is freezing cold. And you have never had it before. And it's the strange looking substance that dad is eating, but I'm not sure you've ever had this before. So I offer it to my daughter and she has no idea what ice cream is. She has no conception of what it means for something to hit your tongue and it's cold and it's sweet and it is wonderful. She has no idea, right? And yet I offer it to her. Why does she take it? Not because she understands ice cream perfectly. She has no conception of what ice cream is. She receives it from me because I'm her dad and I'm not giving her anything but good things. I'm only going to give her good things. She receives it from me, not because she understands it, but because she trusts my heart. And that's the same for God. Listen, I don't know what all of the heavenly rewards look like. I don't know what everything means. I just know that our Father has promised you good things as you walk in faithfulness, as you turn from your sin, as you walk through trials and difficult seasons. There are heavenly rewards for you. And it is a motivation. And I wanna call all of us toward being the type of people who wanna walk in such faithfulness to God that we would hear those words someday when Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Not that we would walk in some kind of motivation that says I have to earn my way to heaven. No, that's given to you by grace. But there are rewards offered to us as motivation for faithfulness in this life. It goes on to kind of further tease this out this way. It says in verse 13, it says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after sin is conceived, it gives birth to death, birth, or birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. 
So what he's gonna do is he's going to talk about these eternal rewards. He's gonna talk about this crown of life that is held out and is offered to us. And then he's gonna turn his attention because he needs us to understand that part of the trials and part of us persevering and part of us standing the test is understanding that along with the test, that there's going to be this countervailing idea of a temptation. In verse 13, he says, God is tempting me. No one should say that. In verse 14, it says a person is tempted and they have their evil desires and he's gonna bring up sin and sin and death and sin. He's going to bring this up because he wants us to be aware of what's gonna happen. See, there are gonna be these tests in life. There are gonna be these trials. There are gonna be these difficult moments and these hard seasons we go through. And the temptation is going to be this. The temptation is going to be to fall into something other than what God intends for that test to be. Let me put it to you this way to be clear. It's that Satan wants to turn your test into a temptation. Like the test you walk through, that difficult thing you're gonna walk through, Satan wants to turn that into a temptation. So, so let me kind of illustrate this in a few different ways. Let me talk about a few different tests that might be turned into temptations. You think about a stressful season. Uh, a stressful season at work or a stressful season at home or just a stressful season called 2020, right? Like a stressful season. And this is a moment where you can choose to trust God and sustain yourself through this test by the faith that God has put inside of you. It is a moment where you're able to pass the test by saying, I'm not going to panic. I'm not gonna lose my mind. I'm gonna trust in the God of heaven. Or that stressful season can turn into a temptation where you try to control people, where you get angry, where you try to manipulate things around you to manage your anxiety. A stressful season can be a test that you pass or a temptation you fall into. Uh, let's talk about a painful season. A painful season where you go through a divorce, where you go through something with your kids, or where you go through a job loss, where you go through something you never expected coming. This is a test. This is a moment where you can say, this pain is deep and yet Jesus has felt my pain and I'm gonna walk with him knowing that he binds up my wounds and makes all things right. That could be your response to this season. Or Satan could spin that test into a temptation where you manage and cope with your pain through all sorts of addictions and sins and patterns that will ultimately destroy you. It's a test, but Satan wants to turn it into a temptation. Maybe it's a broken relationship with someone. And this is an opportunity, it's a test, it's a moment to say, okay, if God's really forgiven me, will I forgive this individual who wounded me so deeply? Like if God was good enough to forgive a sinner like me, will I forgive a sinner like them? It's a test. But what does Satan want to turn it into? He wants to turn it into a temptation that you would let a root of bitterness grow up, that you would be angry and mad and twisted up at that person and let your anger and rage take over. Think about if you're in a tough financial spot. Well, like you got laid off from your job or like the finances haven't been so good or the small business isn't really functioning or the investments haven't played out. This is a test. It's a moment. Are you gonna continue to trust Jesus? Are you gonna continue to be generous? Are you gonna continue to love people? Are you gonna continue to sleep well at night knowing that God is in control? Or, or are you gonna become stingy? Are you gonna become stressed out? Are you gonna take it out on your spouse and on your kids? It's a test, but Satan wants to turn it into a temptation. Or maybe you see the suffering in the world. And we've all seen that in the last 12 months, right? Like we've all seen the real suffering of this world, maybe even in our own communities. And the test is, are you going to respond to God's call that you would do something about it? Are you gonna be moved with the compassion that God has? Or are you just gonna get cynical and jaded? Are you just gonna get angry about the world and bitter at God and doubt his goodness? And then final illustration, maybe you'd think about a struggling marriage. Let me speak to the person who has a struggling marriage right now. 
This might be a moment of testing of your faith, a moment where God is saying, I want you to trust me even with your spouse. I want you to trust me with his or her salvation and their peace in their life. I want you to trust me and not try to control and manipulate. But what does Satan want to do? Turn it into a temptation, a temptation for you to blow up the marriage, to walk away, to do something that you'll regret later. That test may become a temptation if you're not aware of what is happening. If you're not aware that temptation at all times is coming at you like a freight train, you will always fall into it. So I wanna talk to you right now about that temptation James is talking about here. He goes, there's this tempting, and it's not God who's tempting you. It's coming from somewhere else. Let me talk to you tonight about the three sources of temptation. Let me talk to you about those. Three sources of temptation. Here's the first one. It's that the world will tempt you to think that your sin is normal. This is what the world does. The pattern of the world says the lust of your eyes, the lust of your flesh, the pride of your life, that's normal. You should just give into it. Everyone's doing it. It's not a big deal. Humans have always done this. Don't you worry about it. Don't you be some stuck up backwards religious person. Don't be that. That's what the world does. The world tempts you to think your sin is normal. So you might as well do it. You know what the second source of your temptation is? It's your flesh. And your flesh tempts you to think that your sin is necessary. You've got to do it. If you don't do it, you won't be healthy. If you don't do it, you won't be good. If you don't do it, you'll never be at peace. You gotta do it now. College students hear this all the time, right? Well, all your urges are normal, so you might as well just give into it because this is a normal, good, healthy thing. Go for four years and just waste your life. It's a good thing. It's necessary, right? This is what they hear. And some of us as adults past college never actually get out of that mode. We just think every impulse that's inside of us must therefore be good because it's necessary. So your flesh will tempt you to think your sin is necessary. The world will tell you it's normal. And then the devil will tell you that your sin is actually good. That's what the devil will tell you. The devil will tell you your sin, that the Bible absolutely calls a violation of God's holiness, is actually good. What does God know? What does this old book written thousands of years ago really know? See, that's what the devil does. That the devil is going to try to lie to you and deceive you. That, that's why here in verse 16 it says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Like there is a war of deception going on in your life and it's coming from the world. It's coming from your flesh. It's coming from the devil. And it's coming at you constantly. And anyone who is naive enough to think that temptation is not knocking at their door constantly is the type of person who will never thrive in this life. You will never thrive as a follower of Jesus if you're not aware that temptation is constantly knocking at your door. Oh, like, let me put it to you this way tonight. Like there is a war going on for your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And if you are not aware that you are in a war, you will always lose. If you are not aware that there is a war from the world and the flesh and your devil going on for your soul, for your strength, for your holiness, if you are not aware that war is happening, you will always lose. And Calvary, as we go into 2021, might we be the type of people who recognize that temptation is knocking at our door. And back in Genesis, if you remember almost a year ago, we talked about that sin is crouching at your door and it wants to devour you. It wants to overcome you. It wants to own you, but you must master it. You must become the type of person who recognizes the temptation that is flying at you in the midst of the test. And then just, this is what I love so much about the Bible. If James just kind of left it here, he's like, by the way, your test might be a temptation. So good luck with that. Figure it out on your own. That wouldn't be very helpful, right? It wouldn't be helpful at all if James said, hey, by the way, temptation's coming your way from the world and the flesh and the devil. So just do your best. That's not what he says. 
Actually, the very following verses are going to give us the way we can fight back against that sin. It's going to give us the way that we can understand how we make war on our sin. Because here's what I want you to know. I'm not interested in anyone in this room or anyone listening online making peace with their sin. I want you to make war with it in 2021. I want you to be the person who says, I will not tolerate anything that draws me away from God. I want to become more like Jesus on January 1st, 2022 than I am right now. And here's how it's going to happen. It goes on this way in verse 17. It says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through, through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So what's the response? What's the answer to how you make war on your sin rather than making peace with your sin? What's the answer on how you're aware that there's temptation coming at you constantly from the world and the flesh and the devil? It's not some sort of strategy. It's not some sort of group that we create. And the groups are good. Strategies are good. Accountability is good. All of these things are good. But it has to start somewhere. And it can't start within you. Like your war on sin, your war toward holiness, you saying, I want to walk faithfully so that I would receive the good gifts that God has for me. It can't start inside of you because if it starts inside of you, it will always fail. But here's what we've learned. When it starts with God, when it starts with who God is rather than how strong you are, you will find victory over that sin. And here's how this scripture that we just read here describes who God is. It describes him in four ways. And I think this is significant. Number one, it's that God is the incredible giver. It says every good and perfect gift comes from above. Do you know that your life and breath that you had, you woke up this morning and took a breath in that moment, that's a gift from God? And it's a gift not everyone got today? Uh, like when you start to say everything in my life, every food I eat today, every breath I take, every time I enjoy any moment, it is a gift from God. You start to recognize that God is the incredible giver. Every good thing in my life, even the things I've started to take for granted, come from the hand of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. God is the incredible giver. Next, God is the intimate father. Like James describes him here as a father, as a dad. And every time I preach on the fatherhood of God, I'm recognizing that some of you didn't have a really good relationship with your dad. Some of you never knew your dad and some of you wish you never knew your dad because the relationship was so terrible. But here's what I want you to know. But whatever your dad was or wasn't, there is a dad that you have in heaven, a heavenly father who loves you in every way you wish your dad would or you saw your dad did do for you. Like every good father who's ever arrived on this earth is just a reflection of the great father who is in heaven. And what we have in a God is an intimate father, not a cold, distant, angry father, but an intimate one who is close with us, who is in it with us, who is playing on the ground with his children because he wants to be close to you. God's an incredible giver. He's an intimate father. Next, God is the immutable creator. Immutability is not a word we use a ton in church. So um, I'll define it for those of you who are, who are going, what? Um, or who are Googling it right now. Um, immutable just means God doesn't change. And what a beautiful thing. Like maybe you don't think about this often, but how beautiful it is that like we go into a new year and we're not like, I wonder what God's gonna be like this year. We go into a new deck and we go, I wonder if God's like gonna be angrier or, or more joyful or he's gonna be good. This was the entire history of people thinking about gods, by the way. The entire history of people thinking about the gods was they wake up every day and you're not sure what the gods are gonna do. Are they gonna be in a joyful mood? Are they gonna be in an angry mood? Are they gonna throw lightning bolts down or are they gonna throw gold coins? Like you just don't know. But here's the beautiful thing about the God of the Bible. He's immutable. He created everything. He doesn't change. 
He's steady. He's faithful. New are his mercies every single morning. You never have to wonder what God thinks of you, child of God. He's already declared what he thinks of you. You are his child. He loves you. He calls you holy, chosen, dearly loved. That's never going to change. When you wake up tomorrow, you know what you are? Holy, chosen, dearly loved. The immutable creator. The one who never changes. What does it describe God as? God is the incredible giver, the intimate father, the immutable creator, and finally, he is the initiating savior. You see how it says in the text that he chose us? Like he picked us? Like, let me just be the one to constantly remind you that before you wanted God, God wanted you. He picked you, he saw you, he liked you, he wanted you. Jesus didn't die on the cross, not sure who he was dying for. He knew exactly who he was dying for. He knew he was dying for you. There is no moment where God has begrudgingly let you into his family. He picked you. He wanted you. It was like on the schoolyard when you were growing up, everyone was picking teams and you were always terrified you were gonna be picked last or not picked at all. That's not the case for you in the kingdom of heaven. Like God looked out over all creation and he wanted you. Like he wanted you in his family. He's the initiating savior. Like the great glorious good news of the gospel isn't that you wanted God, it's that God wanted you first. And here's what I wanna tell you tonight. The way you fight against your sin isn't to muster up some kind of strength within you, try to make yourself stronger. It isn't to start within yourself. It's to look to God, the God who is described in the Bible as these things and infinitely more things, and to recognize that this God, this God is worthy of choosing over my sin. Let me speak to anyone here who's walking in sin, some kind of pattern, Uh, Maybe it's a habitual thing. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's something that just kind of plagues you from time to time. Maybe it's a doubt or an insecurity or a pattern or a way of thinking. There are a million different ways that sin plays out in our lives. It's not the same for each of us. But to anyone who's walking in something right now, walking in sin and not even sure how to overcome, not even sure how to get unstuck from where you are spiritually. Can I just mention this one thing? That there's one reason, Let let me say this to you. There's one reason that you should walk away from whatever temptation you're facing right now. And this is true today, it was true yesterday, it is true tomorrow. There is one reason. And the reason isn't because you're a really moral person. That the reason you should walk away from your sin isn't because, well, you should be better and you know better and your mama raised you better. That is not what the scripture's telling us. It's not this kind of moralism where we do better just to kind of impress people or impress God. If there's one reason you should walk away from your sin right now, And that reason is three words, because God is better. God's better. That that, that immutable creator, incredible giver, initiating savior, intimate father, he's better than whatever sin you're walking in right now. He's better than whatever temptation faces you. Whatever thing you're dealing with on the inside and you run to that thing for your comfort or for your peace or for your hope or for your health, whatever that thing is you run to, God's better, God's better. Uh, Like the great cry of the Bible isn't turn to God and trust him because you'll be miserable, but it'll be the right thing to do. That's not the great cry of the Bible. The great cry of the Bible is that God is the thing we get. He is a prize. He is better than anything else. And whatever temptation you face, whether it's at the bottom of a bottle or something you see on the internet or some way you treat someone in your life, whatever that temptation is, can I just tell you these three words? God's better. God is better than that. He is the one you want. And whatever thing inside of you is pushing you toward that temptation, when you find out that God is better, it changes everything. It's like this. So it's like the beginning of January. And the beginning of January is like the annual season of life where we all make the promise we're not going to keep that we're going to eat better this year, right? 
We all do this. Okay, it's, it's New Year. Okay, 2020's past. Like, trying to, time to leave, like, like the COVID-19 behind, right? Different guy, right? Like, we're going to leave that behind. And people go, okay, it's time to eat healthier. It's time to eat better. I've seen this all over social media already. Like, people wanting to get fit. And here's what we've learned. You can't just decide to stop eating the food you're eating, right? Like, if you've been eating junk food and nothing but junk food up until January 1st, you don't just decide, I'm not going to eat any, anything ever again, right? Because you will die. You will die if you eat no food. Here's what we all know. The key isn't replace junk food with no food. The key is replace junk food with better food, with satisfying food, with healthy food, with real food. That's what you do. You replace something worse with something better. And that's the call toward you forsaking your sin in the scripture. It's not just you trying really hard to muscle up the strength. It's finding something better, and that's God. The immutable, the immutable creator, the intimate father, the initiating savior, and the incredibly generous savior. Uh, like here's how I wanna conclude. I wanna speak to you. Tonight we've been talking about our sin. We've been talking about these lingering, besetting sins that are in our life. We've been talking about the things that weigh us down. We've been talking about these temptations that come when the test is given to us and Satan draws us away into this. And here's what I want you to know in closing. I want you to know that if you have sin you are wrestling through in your life, which I assume is most of you. Listen, we never reach a place in life where sin's no longer a temptation. And if you ever think you're gonna get to a place this side of glory where you're just never tempted by sin anymore, you gotta remember that the scriptures tell us Jesus was tempted just like we were. And you're not Jesus, right? So we have this sin we're wrestling with. And here's what I want you to know, that you do not fight sin with willpower. You don't do it, well, you can do it. It just won't work. Because guess what? You're not strong enough. You don't have enough willpower. And so many people try to fight their sin by just saying, I'll try harder and I'll really be disciplined. And this year, I'll really try and it's all about your effort. And here's what I've learned. That fails every time because you're trying to take away the wickedness of sin and replace it with nothing. Here's what I've learned. You do not fight sin with willpower. You fight sin with worship. You fight sin by getting, getting in the face of the almighty God, by crying out to him. And when I say worship, I don't just mean singing. Singing is part of worship, but worship so much more. It is a life that says God is great and he is greater than anything in this world. And I'm gonna look toward him. I'm gonna pray toward him. I'm gonna be in my Bible. I'm gonna fast to seek him. I'm gonna get in groups and talk about him. I'm gonna show up at church or lean in online. I am going to worship because you don't fight sin with willpower. You fight it with worship. You don't fight sin by just trying to overcome it yourself. You fight it by finding something better. And I want to close with these three words again. God is better. God is better. God is better. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you. Uh, you're the God who comes and meets us. You're the God who encounters us right in the midst of um, our sin, our struggle, our temptation. God, I thank you that you're the God who meets us uh, when we feel weak. I thank you that you're the God who meets us when we feel like we failed or we're stuck in something. God, I pray for anyone listening right now who is battling with sin, who is waging war with temptation that feels like waves just crashing upon the shore. God, I pray that this year, 2021, would be the year they get a vision of you, that you are better than their sin, better than their temptation, better than the pattern or addiction or whatever they're walking through. So God, would you help them? Would you bless them? Would you hold out to them this crown of life that's promised to those who love them? God, may we trust you. May we want you more than anything else. God, I pray 2021, you would give Calvary Community Church a hunger for God like never before. A hunger for your son, Jesus. God, may it be true in us. May we be a church that is filled with worship and praise to the glory of your name and to the goodness and good joy of our souls. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said,
Amen.